Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are continuing through Revelation and we're in the text. We're uh, in the seven messages to the seven churches. And um, I don't know, man, this is... uh, this is one of those sections where I, I don't know about you, but growing up in churches, I've never heard a sermon series on the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. but I have at a couple times heard a sermon series through the the seven letters of yeah. chapters two and three. So this seems like, a, and, and I think a lot of it is folks are maybe scared to tackle four through 22. Yes, and so they're right. like, okay, this is safe. This is just like, yeah. Uh, this is just like the Paul's letter to Ephesians or something like this. Right. So is that your experience? Do you see that this is something that is usually more addresses these couple yes. chapters? Yes. And I, I can speak to that just briefly here. And that is it's easier for pastors to preach sermons on this, thinking that it's like the letters of Ephesians and Colossians mm-hmm. and Thessalonians. So they address the seven letters as though they're ancient letters, which they kind of are. But the reality is the rest of the book of Revelation is so difficult and it's so controversial in their churches. Why would they even bother bringing all those topics up? So they venture into these chapters and they leave the rest of the book out. And obviously I think they're doing a kind of a, a disservice to the book of revelation because these, so, these chapters are so integral to the rest of the message. Yeah. And so th- these chapters cannot be void from the rest of the book. Right. And even in our popular theology that we've talked about before, but uh, a more dispensational reading of, of revelation is going to say, it, you know, even the dispensationalist we would find common ground to say, Hey, there was something happening with seven churches. And so, you know, the the popular belief would be that chapters two and three were relevant to them, Mm -hmm. but then chapter four is when the rapture starts and that's all future stuff. And so that's where we would have our line of demarcation where we would say, yes, this was for them, but it's also completely connected to the rest of the book. You can't have one without the other. Right. Right. Even with this, though, they, they are letters. You've been referring to them as messages. So they're not letters in the truest sense of you can't just pull one out and say it's just like Colossians or just like yeah. Galatians or Ephesians. No, it's not. They're actually significantly different. And I I mentioned to you before that I've called them letters for so many years in my life that I, when I finally realized, oh, these actually aren't letters or prophetic messages, the word letter, it still comes out from time to time. So you're going to hear me say the seven letters and like, oh, even in my commentary i'm like oh i have to delete that i i accidentally wrote letters and stuff like that they are letters in one sense that of course they are addressed to particular churches at a particular time and so that's important to know who the seven churches were and or what and what they were and where they were located and what's going on with them that's all important but they also lack all kinds of features of ancient letters um uh, grace and peace to you or customary mm-hmm. uh, openings and closings things like that and but, those are the things that we actually see in chapter one mm-hmm. of Revelation. Right. And we, and we see chapter 22 yeah. end with a standard letter amen. ending with an amen. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, the whole thing is a letter. Chapter one through 22 is a letter. Well, it's the whole an apocalyptic thing's, Yeah, it's letter. framed as if it's a letter, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a loose, even then it's a loose framing. Now, these seven messages have actually less of a, of a even of a loose framing than you yeah. actually have in the entirety of, of the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. So... They're prophetic messages. Mm-hmm. Um, they do contain an opening introduction of Jesus as the speaker, but the introduction, however, is just not a standard introduction to letters. Each of the messages actually begin with this prophetic formula, which depending on your translation, would we'll, we'll say it's translates something along the lines of, um, these are the words of, 
I think some translations will say thus says. Yeah. Well, that's fine, but it's actually more emphatic than that. And this expression is used like a couple hundred times, I believe, in the prophets to introduce mm -hmm. a prophetic saying from God. So Jesus is not just speaking to the churches. He's speaking prophetically to the churches or John speaking prophetically to the, to the churches as if the words of Jesus or the words of God are now actually the words of Jesus. So uh, very significant. With that too, because you're, you're like, you know, chapter two, verse one, you just referenced the second part of verse one, which would say in, in my translation, the words of him who holds the seven stars. Yeah. But even when you back up from there, when we read a typical letter for, you know, we'll use Paul because he wrote 13 mm -hmm. of them. Paul right to the churches of Galatia, to the church at Rome. Right. And even here, all, all of these start off with to the angel of the church. Mm -hmm. And so you even have a difference there where it's the, it's like, if you're being literal about it, the message doesn't go to the church itself. It's to the angel of that church. What, how do we take that? Well, I mean, is that David apocalyptic? Said that it is apocalyptic, but uh, because you have the apocalyptic transmission goes from God to Jesus, to an angel, to John. Mm -hmm. And so that might be all that's referred to here when, when you see the angel. And that is, this is just the way the transmission goes. Jesus speaks to the angel. The angel mm. speaks to John. That, that's all that's happening. David Aoni, a very prevalent co mm -hmm. commentator in the book of Revelation, wrote three parts in the, word, commentary. Yeah, in the yeah. word biblical uh, series. He says that angel here is just um, the pastor. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that has not been widely accepted by the academic community in the book of Revelation, but I think it's just simply the transmission goes from the Father to Jesus, Jesus to the angel, the angel to John. And since Jesus is the one speaking, he speaks to the angel. And so the angel then tells, and then John obviously uh, does, does the writing. Okay, okay, good. Mm -hmm. um, you had also said that it's... Uh it's prophetic. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the way when I, you know, when I give overviews of this book in my classes, uh, and I've never taught through the book itself, but you know, you teach how to, how to read it in, in a sense, if I always teach in my hermeneutics classes that the, the role of the prophet is to be a covenant enforcer. They're calling mm -hmm. people's mm -hmm. God, mm -hmm. or they're, they're calling God's people to repentance. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, obey the covenant, you will be blessed to disobey the covenant, you will be cursed. And, right. and that's what you see in the old Testament. And that's what you see in all of these letters. Everything ends with some sort of phrase, you know, to the one who conquers, yes. you know, you, you will have this, right. um, stop doing these things. And so you even have, it's very prophetic in the sense of it's yeah. having that blessing and curse type thing, uh, stay faithful or else. Yes. And to understand the book of revelation, we need to understand the kind of the covenant lawsuit motif. And we'll bring mm -hmm. in a scholar in a few weeks here to have a discussion on that because it kind of sounds boring, but it's critical to understanding well, it's, it's actually going to help you understand Isaiah and Jeremiah and other scriptures, but it's also going to help us understand the book of Revelation too. Nice. So it's a letter, it's prophetic, but it's an apocalypse. So how does yes. that work with these messages specifically? All right. So that's kind of the irony, right? Of these churches and pastors that go preach sermons on the seven messages, and then they don't do sermons on uh, chapter four and following because it's all apocalyptic. The answer is no, the seven messages are also apocalyptic. And so the whole book of Revelation kind of combines epistle, prophecy, and apocalyptic, and so do these seven messages. So the fact that each of the messages mentioned, and as you mentioned just a minute ago, let the one who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches, there's your apocalyptic catchphrase. I mean, that that is a phrase, obviously, that you go, well, Jesus said that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Jesus' parables were apocalyptic because they were, in one sense, veiled, but remember, apocalypse means to unveil. And so mm -hmm. the answer is, if you come to Jesus, the answer what the parables are, you'll, he'll tell you what they mean. And the same thing, John's revealing something that the Spirit says to the churches, 
that was previously hidden. And so if you have ears to hear, you can hear. If you don't have ears to hear, this is not going to make sense to you. Just like the parables didn't make sense to the Pharisees. Like, we know he's talking about us, but what does he mean? This apocalyptic catchphrase that the one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches is your first is a clue that this is apocalyptic too. Okay. So it is apocalyptic, but then how do we approach this in the similar way that we would read Galatians, Ephesians, James, 1st, 2nd John? Yeah. So you, any it's, a, letter. it's a more difficult challenge now, right? So the first thing is we address each one of the messages individually to the particular church to which it was addressed. And so we have to find out, okay, what do we know about Ephesus? Or what do we know about Laodicea? What do we know about Sardis and the historical context behind it? that might help us understand the message a little bit better. So we approach it in that, in that same manner. But then we also have to go, how does this message fit in with the other messages, as well as how does this message fit in with the entire scope of the entire book? Because note that each one of the seven messages ends with, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So even though each one's addressed to a particular church, mm -hmm. it's actually addressed to all the churches. Now, in addition to that, in the very middle of the seven messages, which is the, the letter to the church in uh, Thyatira, I think it is, right? In the very middle letter, the fourth letter, the, the middle of the seven letters, it says in verse uh, 20, I think it's verse 23, and all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches the hearts and minds. In the middle of the middle message, it says all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches the hearts and minds. So the seven messages have obviously this universal church in view, in, in view. Uh, there, the fact that there are seven churches is another indication that this represents all of Christendom and all churches. We need to understand the message in light of its particular locale, and then how this message fits in with the scope of the seven messages, and then how this message fits in with the scope of the entire book of Revelation. Hmm. So when you're looking at how to read revelation there, there's kind of and we won't go mm -hmm. through all this now right. but there's like you have like you know maybe your four different schools <laughs> your popular schools of how to read revelation itself uh one of the the schools says revelation parts of it represent different eras in church history and so the letters would be uh considered part of this um is, is that a valid way of reading this no but it's been a very popular way so mm -hmm. my mentor uh, for my phd program when stuff uh Vern Poitras said that if you notice that John Calvin, who is major influential in reformed circles, right? Sure. Yep. He wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, my, my mentor said to me, he says, and I'm sure glad he didn't. Mm. And I'm like, why? He says, because he would have written it in court, according to what's, what you're talking about, is kind of this historicist viewpoint. Yeah. The reformers held a historicist viewpoint of the book of Revelation. The idea that Revelation is describing the history of the Christian church. And of course, they all got to the point of Revelation 13, the beast, and said, that's the Pope. Mm. And even the Westminster Confession says the yep. Pope is the Antichrist, right? That's oh, does the, it really say that? Yeah, it does. The oh, Westminster okay. Confession says that the Pope is the Antichrist. Huh. And so you have this historic, historicist mentality that says what happens in Revelation 6 happens before chapter 7, which happens before chapter 8, which happens before chapter 9, and all the way through. And of course, we're always near the end of the story. And no matter where you are yep. in world history, whether you're in the 10th century, or whether you're in the 16th century, you're always reading it from the standpoint of, oh, we're at the end. It's the same idea with you know the Hal Lindsey and the dispensational understanding. We're at the end. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about to happen in our generation. So idea of this historicist viewpoint also says that the seven letters represent seven eras of church history. So the first era was, of course, the era of Ephesus, and they were 
They were once strong and they were really good at, at uh, doctrinal purity, but they lost their first love. And then the second era is the church of Smyrna. And that was the era of persecutions. And that, it, by the way, you can make this work. Mm -hmm. You can certainly make this, you can do this with anything, of course. You can make anything work. But Smyrna was heavily persecuted. Oh, that's the era of the Roman persecutions leading up into the beginning of the fourth century and the great persecution against the Christian church. And of course, historicists are always going to read these seven messages as, and we are now at the yep. era of, La of Laodicea. We we're at the end and we're at the church that's become wealthy and powerful, but it's also become corrupt. So yeah, that's not a very good way of reading it. And that way of reading it, I don't know of anyone that holds that view today, even though the, I think almost all, if not all of the reformers, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, they all held to some form of this then because it made sense of the fact that the Roman Catholic Church was the Antichrist sure. and they read it that way. And obviously the beast in the heart of Babylon was a, was the Vatican and all things like that. So, yeah. And, and that's just a caution in general. Yeah. Uh, don't read end of the world type stuff in light of your immediate context. So this is what the reformers were doing in light of what was happening in Western Europe 500 years ago. Yeah. This is what we do in America now in light of geopolitical things yep. that are affecting us directly. Uh, and how offensive is that to our brothers and sisters around the world who, when we say, oh, obviously this is a sign of the apocalypse, uh, because and I'm using popular language for the last 15 yeah. years, Obama is becoming president, therefore he's probably the antichrist. And, and we're looking at our thing, right? Yeah. What, what are you telling our Nigerian brothers and sisters who are being beheaded uh, for their faith or, or Chinese brothers and sisters who are being yanked from their, uh, their, their homes because they're being faithful and not submitting to the government? It's, it's like, how come it's about us right. <laughs> all the yep. time? So anyway. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And we have a history of 2000 years of false prophecies about the end of the world. And yeah. if you don't believe me, just read first Thessalonians and second right. Thessalonians because yep. they were already doing it in the new Testament. Yeah. Hey everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at determined truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. So there's a, um, a form of parallelism, a, a structure that will, is used throughout scripture in many art forms, and it's called a chiasm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the easiest way to understand this, everyone knows what a chiasm is. Even if you don't know what a chiasm it is, you totally know what it is. The, the most favorite, famous one in American pop culture is it's uh, John F. Kennedy, right? Ask not what your country could do for you, but what you could do for your country, right? That's a, that's a basic chiasm. It's like A, B, B, A, where you yeah. mirror it. My um, favorite one actually is I'm stuck on Band-Aid because Band-Aid stuck <laughs> on me. <laughs> So you had to go to politics. I just I, went the Band-Aid. So. I was a little more highbrow on this yeah, one. Yeah, you, you're for the common folk stuck there. Stuck on Band-Aid because Band-Aid stuck on me. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so th this is something where you could definitely see it. You see it in Genesis 1. Uh, Let us make man in our image and the image of God. He created them. You know, this is a simple one. There's maybe longer structures uh, in the Bible where this happens. The book of Daniel is laid out yes. in a chiasm from chapters 2 through 7. Yeah. Uh, but oftentimes we get like over... Hype, like we, we see this thing and we want to see it everywhere. Yes. Um, how should we see a yes. chiastic structure 
in Revelation chapters two and three, you have seven. It, it would seem, uh, it would make sense that you would have three, then one, then three. You know, is this something that we yeah. see in Revelation two and three? Yeah. Uh, again, just make sure everybody's tracking with us. So a chiasm is you say the first thing and then the second part. And then the second time you repeat it, you say the second part first and then the first part last. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. A, B, B, A or A, B, C. And you can go A, B, C, D, D A. Yeah, you, you can do whatever. A, B, C, C with two things in the middle. Mm-hmm. And typically in a chiasm, the thing that's in the center, so if it's A, B, C, B, A. That receives the, the C emphasis, is the right? center. It, yeah. it receives the emphasis. So you have seven letters. So you would go the first three letters, like, like the first letter Ephesus and the last letter uh, Laodicea, they parallel one another. And then Smyrna and Philadelphia parallel one another, which actually, by the way, they do. Smyrna and Philadelphia really do parallel one another. Then you have Pergamum and Sardis parallel one another. And then you have in the middle uh, Thyatira. Now, the point of that actually is, and by the way, if you study Revelation at all and the structure of Revelation, there are so many things out there on the chiasms that they found because everyone's looking for them. And if you look for something hard enough, you're eventually going to find whatever you, you wanted to find. The reason for doing that, however, is that this is actually very common in the prophets. The prophets do this, and they do it intentionally, and they do it often. So Daniel 2 and Daniel 2 through Daniel 7, is, mm-hmm. it's definitely a chiasm. Yep. You have the vision of Nebuchadnezzar and the four parts of the great st- statue, and then t- in chapter 2, and then d- Daniel chapter 7, you have the four the beasts. Four beast, yeah. In Daniel 3 and in Daniel 6, you have Daniel's three uh, buddies who are thrown in the, in the fiery furnace, and Daniel thrown in the lion's den. Mm-hmm. In the Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, you have two kings. Who become arrogant mm-hmm. and are become end up becoming like beasts. One king yep. repents and one king doesn't repent. So it's very apparent. It, it does that. And in fact, Daniel chapter two actually is chiastic in itself. That mm-hmm. chapter internally is. So it makes sense that John would do this. I, however, don't think John does this. I think you have what I might call a loose chiasm in the seven letters, but it's very loose. And the thing about a chiasm is that the center item becomes the most prominent item. And that actually is the case in the book of Revelation. So if chiasm or no chiasm, the letter of the church in Thyatira, or the message of the church in Thyatira is the center of the seven messages. And that's the focal point. I think what you have actually more significantly is in the seven messages are what's called a a three, four pattern. And this actually is important. Seven seals and seven trumpets have a 4-3 pattern. Many scholars think the seven bowls do also. I'm not convinced of that. Mm. But the first four trumpets and first four seals are parallel with one another, and then the last three are, are, are distinct. In the seven messages, you actually have, so if you look at, if you have your Bible, Vinny, or, or if you're listening here, chapter two and verse seven, it says, the one having in the ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then it says, to the one who overcomes, I will give. Okay, so the order is, the one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and then to the one who overcomes. Then you skip down to chapter 2, verse 11, and that's the end of the message to Ephesus. The end of the message to um, Smyrna says, the one who ha- verse 11, the one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and the one who overcomes will not be harmed. Verse 11. Then you go to verse 17, the end of the message to Pergamum. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and to the one who overcomes, I will give. And so, Clearly, that order still applies in the first three letters. But all of a sudden, in the fourth letter, the message of Thyatira, it says in verse 26, and the one who overcomes, and the one who keeps my words until the end. You're like, wait a minute. It's not until 29 that you get the phrase, the one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in fact, that pattern, the one who overcomes in chapter 3, verse 5, in the letter to the message to Sardis, appears first. And then verse 6, the one who has an ear, let him hear. 
the message to the church in Philadelphia in verse 12, the one who, the one who overcomes, and in verse 13, the one who has an ear, let him hear. And of course, in the message to the church in Laodicea, in verse 21, the one who overcomes, I will give. And in verse 22, the one who has an ear, let him hear. So John has indicated within the messages that the first three go together and the last four go together. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the seals and trumpets and maybe the bowls, the first th four go together and the last three go mm -hmm. together. Interesting. So you said a loose chiasm, which is kind of strange because it seems like it could either be a chiasm or not. Mm -hmm. right. Like it's, it's a, a specific tool, you know, that, or, uh, you know, a device, a rhetorical device that authors are using. So how is it just loose? Well, it's, it's loose because first off, the center of the message is certainly the one to Thyatira. And that's the, that's the important part. Whether you think it's chiasm or not, the message of the church in Thyatira is the center of it. And that's going to be the most, most prominent, the most apparent evidence of a chiasm, which all by itself wouldn't prove that there is a chiasm is actually in the, I mentioned a minute ago, the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia, which are the second and the sixth, they, they be the B of the A, B, C, D, C, B, A um, paradigm. And both of those messages, chapter two, verse nine, and chapter three, verse nine, it says, those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, and which, by the way, is problematic. And I wrote mm -hmm. a chapter in a book that just actually it just came out on is John anti-Semitic in, mm. in, because he says those who say they are, are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The which is actually, also largely our point of our conversation with uh, Mike, Dr. Michael Brown yeah, uh, a few episodes correct. back. Yeah, mm -hmm. Okay, so you have the second and second, the second and sixth messages that are basically parallel with one another. In addition, both Smyrna and Philadelphia, the second and, and sixth messages, are the only two messages that don't have any bad, any negative things. So each message has, hey, here's what you're doing well. Here's what you're not doing well. Two of the messages don't have any good news. And two of the messages have no bad news. And the two messages with no bad news are the second and the sixth. But of course, the two messages with no good news are the fifth and the seventh. So that mm -hmm. doesn't work. So that, it's like there seems to be some evidence of a chiasm here, but you can't run this, run this too far. Now, the significance of all this is that, again, that the message of the church in Thyatira is the center of the seven messages. And in the center of the seven messages, you have this promise to the one who overcomes. Now, in the message of Thyatira, it says, as I just kind of alluded to a second ago, to the one who overcomes and the one who keeps my words until the end. So you have that added phrase. It's not in any of the other messages. So now you see a heightened awareness or a heightened significance on the one who overcomes because it's the one who overcomes and the one who keeps my words until the end. That's verse 26. You also have this command to repent in the messages to the churches. But in the message to the church in Thyatira, this command to repent is significantly intensified. In fact, the word repent occurs 12 times in the book of Revelation. And of course, 12 is the number for the people of God. So again, we just have to keep in mind, and I'm going to say this often, the book of Revelation was written to the churches. And the message applies to us. It's not written to the world to aware, make them awareness of whatever happens when we're raptured. It's written to the churches. The command repent occurs 12 times. It says, hey, the command to repent is significant. It's central. The most significant one then is the central one in the letter to the church or the message of the church in Thyatira. So you want to read, Vinny, uh, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Okay, I'll start, I'll start at 19, Okay, uh, that kicks off the phrase, but I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your later works exceeded at first, 
but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick or onto a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. This is clearly, in fact, the Greek in verse uh, nine, verse 20 says, but I have this against you. And the word, but is a emphatic, but mm-hmm. so I know your works and your faith and love and all that's all great, but I have this against you. And this long description of all the things he has against this church in Thyatira intensifies this command to repent so you you need to repent so let me ask this because yeah we've spent time where you're talking about how revelation's a love story and and we talked about you know the idea of judgment and wrath and that sort of thing this this seems like a very clear like how do do you basically harmonize this seems very harsh and very much like no something something judgmental and harsh is going to happen yeah well let's kind of look at this passage a little bit first off the word the name jezebel it's probably simply not actually her name. It's some prophetess, which does, by the way, tell you that there were female prophetesses in mm-hmm. the churches that were being well-received. So this whole issue of women uh, teaching and preaching, whatever, like it wasn't even an issue back then. So let's actually stop pause yeah. real quick. What it's not saying is that you see women shouldn't be prophetesses yes. because this is what they do by That's nature. Right. It's saying, no, there was a woman who was abusing her position. Uh, she was a, a false prophetess. Yes, yeah, a false prophet. Yeah. It just like yeah. there is going to be and, false prophets. And she's not rejected because she's a woman. She's Correct. rejected because she's preaching false. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The same thing in chapter two, you know, th- th- those who follow the way of Balaam or the Nicolaitans in chapter two. Then when it says, I will kill her children with death. Uh, that's my kind of wooden literal translation. Mm-hmm. The word children here doesn't mean her actual physical children of this particular woman. It's this woman is being named Jezebel and like, and according to the Old Testament queen Jezebel, but her children are those who follow her teachings. The conflict, though, that you're bringing up here is like, well, how does this work? This, you know, God seems nasty and angry and everything else. My argument is, in the seals and trumpets and bowls in particular, especially the seals and the trumpets, that God's not the one bringing wrath upon the world to get the rest of the people who survive to repent. I'm going to kill a third of the world, or I'm going to kill a fourth of the world, then I'll kill a third of the world, and the rest of you better get the message and repent. God's not doing that. That would make God no better than any other dictator, or any other tyrant in the world. You know, Rome crucifies 2,000 people at one time and says, now all you guys in Jerusalem, you see these crucified, crucified victims, you better stay in line or this is what's going to happen to you. That's not what's going on. The difference is, the distinction is, is that God's speaking to the churches. And so God's not holding over the, over the head of his enemies, you know, this word saying you better repent. And he's speaking to the churches. Mm-hmm. But there's a big difference there. And by the way, I wrote a series of blogs back in June May and June of 2023, depending on when you're listening to this, on this, you know, is God a moral monster? And I wrote a couple other ones on. So the biblical story, however, just constantly says that God is just in his judgment. And what he does is he gives humanity time to repent. I mean, start in the biblical story with Adam and Eve. What happens? Adam and Eve sin. And he says, well, if you do this, you're going to die. But they don't die. Well, they did eventually. Well, Yeah, that's true. But God says in Genesis, he says, on the day you do this, you will die. And then he says, you know what? I'm going to give you mercy. And I'm, going to give you, I'm going to keep you out of the garden and you will eventually die because you can't have the tree of life now. But I'm going to give you an extension of life. Why? Because that extension of life is so that they can repent. Hmm. It's delaying the judgment in order that they may repent. I think that's what's happening. 
uh, in the seals and, and in the trumpets and maybe even in the bowls also. But the other thing though is what you have happening in the seals and the trumpets in particular is God giving them over to their own actions, reaping the consequences of their own actions. Paul says this in the book of Romans mm -hmm. that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all wickedness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and all that good stuff. And then he says, even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. And then Paul says, therefore, God gave them over. And I know now you're going to suffer the consequences of your own actions. And I think that's what happens. The book of Ezekiel says this also in Ezekiel 39, verse 23, it says, the nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me and I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hand of their adversaries and all of them fell by the sword. What's happening in the book of Ezekiel is Ezekiel, the prophet's like, hey, God's on your side. He's your covenant God. If you follow his commands and just serve him, it, it'll be fine. Don't give in to the kings of, king of Babylon. But what do they do? They go to the king of Babylon. So what does God says? Okay, guess what? You want to follow the king of Babylon? I'm going to deliver you to the hand of the king of Babylon. Now you can say God delivered them over to the king of Babylon. And he did. No, no problem. That's the, the sovereignty issue. But what's ultimately happening is, is God says, you know what? What you sowed, you're going to reap. You want to follow Babylon? Babylon's going to come in and, con and conquer you. So I think that's what's going on there. Another point I'd say, and that's this. The next thing I'd say actually is the threat of punishment for those who fail to repent is an act of love because what God's reminding us of is the consequence of our sins. But he's speaking to the churches. He's not speaking to the nations. He's speaking to those who are already part of his covenant community. The message of the church in Laodicea, he says in verse, chapter 3, verse 19, he says, I correct and discipline those whom I love. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The idea is that I know what's best for you. We're already in this covenant relationship with one another. I want you to repent. So I'm going to bring this upon you if you don't repent. So it's not, obviously, the idea is that it's God's desire that they don't suffer. The next thing I'd say, and that's this, the threat of judgment is, is aimed at the people of God. God's not threatening, threatening the nations. He's threatening the people of God that they need to repent. Now, here's the reason why that's important, and that's this because God's concern is for the nations. The people of God are the ones who have been called by God, who have been chosen by God to make God known to the nations. And if the people of God go bad, then who will be my messenger? Like Paul says in the book of Romans, like who will go for us? Mm -hmm. Whom shall I send in the book of Isaiah? We are the ones who are called to be a light to the nations. So the threat of judgment is not to the nations, but to the church because the church has already been called by God and chosen by God. They know better. And because the church is the one who is sent out or the people of God are the one who are, who are called to be sent out to the nations. And if they fail, then what does that mean for the nations? Uh, and I think you see this again in the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet says, speaking about how Israel had failed. He says, you know, when the when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name. And it was when the people of God, when Israel went to the nations, they profaned my name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. So God says, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. And Ezekiel goes on to say, therefore, I'm going to act for the sake of my name. So uh, I would simply say those things uh, overall, I'm not denying that there's judgment. I'm not, not denying mm -hmm. that there's wrath. I'm not denying those things. I'm simply saying the story is a love story where God's delaying his judgment upon the nations so the people of God can go to the nations and bring the, the kingdom to them so that the nations can have time to repent, just like Adam and Eve weren't killed immediately. They can have time to repent. The problem is when the people whom God sends go bad, God needs to say, you need to repent. And so remember the word repent is to the churches, 
And that's why the, the 12 occurrences of repentance are important. I'm curious, because as you're speaking on that, I'm in my mind, I'm I'm replaying John 3.16, which is mm. like the most favorite famous book in, or mm-hmm. verse in the Bible for God to love the world. He gave his only son. Uh, you know, you, you have this idea in here complimenting what you're saying is he loved the world. This yes. is the nations. It's not just Israel. Right. But with that, if if you continue reading on in John three and you go to you know seventeen and eighteen, yeah, yeah uh, exactly. He, yeah, he, he yeah. makes he makes the comment like, "I didn't come into the world to condemn the world because they're condemned already." Yeah, and and so it's even that kind of idea. It's like, no, the problem's already here, but I'm calling my people and I want to express what's happening here, uh, and, and the and the love that I have for my people. Right. Uh, and so it's 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 not saying the same thing that you're exposing from Revelation, but it's definitely uh, yeah. complementary. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. exactly, and it. And let, I mean, a takeaway for us then is, hey, guys, we need to get our, our act in order. Mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. matter. It's not a matter of just you being personally righteous and being faithful yeah. and going to church and tithing or whatever it might be, or reading your Bible and going to Bible study. It's a matter of you making God known to the nations. Yeah. And, and so it also means in our in our evangelism, it's not the best method is not turn or burn uh, yeah. theology where you're staying. I, I remember last year yeah, we went yeah, to Disneyland with my family and, and we're walking across the street to get into the main, if you've ever been to Disneyland in Southern California, it's like on a main road, there's Harbor road. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like on the corner there, it's still public property. So you have the street preacher, probably a well-meaning person. Mm-hmm. And, and they have the signs of, you know, turn or burn, you're going to hell. They have a, uh, they were actually being respectful because a lot of those people are not respectful, but in a, they were preaching their message as respectfully as they mm-hmm. could. And it's like, I, I don't think this is the best demonstration of the gospel because it turns this is, people off. It, it absolutely does. And, and it's not, it's not coercing people uh, by trying to get them to buy life insurance. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, no it's going to be listening. bad. No, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think I even wrote a blog about this, but we went to a Arizona diamondbacks game here in Phoenix last year and there was a guy and he was not nice and he was mm. not kind. I'm thinking mm. the gospel is about love and you are not being loving. I think he thought he was loving because he was yes. telling them they're all going to hell. Yep. Yep. But it was all about, I'm thinking, who's going to listen to you? Mm-hmm. First off, no one's listening to you. And secondly, you're turning more people off than, than anything else. And so maybe the people that I'm walking with right now, I'm trying to disciple. Yeah. And now they're looking at, you know, I don't want this Christianity after all, because yep. that's what Christians are like. It's, it's really, really problematic. But let's also be clear, and that is this. When we talk about making Jesus known and making God known to the nations, it's not necessarily even with our words. Mm. It's by living like Jesus lived which is a sacrificial love for the sake of the other. He laid down his life for the sake of the other. And do we lay down our lives for our wives, right? Mm-hmm. Let alone mm-hmm. our children, let alone our neighbors, let alone our, our, you know, our family members or our neighbors or our coworkers or the people in our community. When we start doing that and loving them as Jesus loved them, we're making Christ known. Yeah. We don't have to speak. We just have to act. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determine Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determine Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. One thing that I have discovered, especially teaching in the local church for a number of years, is most Christians have zero understanding of church history. Mm, and uh, yeah. one of the things that we oftentimes think, because we know that there was Christian persecution. But what we think is what happened is we, we have this idea of the Colosseum and lions and, and Christians being fed to the lions. 
and we assume that this is just what happened. We, we read Acts chapter seven and the stoning of Stephen. And then right after that, it was just gnarly the whole time right. uh, for 300 years until Constantine. Right. Um, is, is this the best way to understand church history and persecution? And how much does persecution play a role in terms of how we understand what's happening in, in the book of Revelation and these seven messages? Okay, so it's obviously not an accurate reflection of Roman of, of church history. The first 300 years of Christian history, there were isolated persecutions in various parts of the empire mm -hmm. at various points in time, but not very common and not no empire-wide persecutions until the 300s, until the fourth century, beginning of the fourth century. That's so you could have you could have one city or region yes. that is experiencing it, and another one that is That's perfectly correct. fine. Okay. Exactly, it just depends on what's going on. It's not a homogenous empire yeah. like like they don't all have they don't have 50 states, and every state has a governor, and every state has you mm -hmm. know counties, and that it's not like it's not like that. Um, so it has been widely believed for years, although no longer is this widely believed, that the Book of Revelation was written during an era of persecution. It seems to describe hey, you're going to suffer. But I think that's actually the answer is that is you're going to suffer. It doesn't mean that you are now. Mm -hmm. So Revelation is written with this understanding that if you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will suffer. I think, by the way, Jesus's own teachings are going to say that to the disciples. Yeah. So you read the gospels this way. Hey, if you go out and do this, they're going to put you out of the synagogues and kill you and think they're offering you know, service to God. It's like, that's actually John, the gospel of John I just quoted there. Uh, so I don't think necessarily, and it's widely believed today that Revelation was not necessarily written during a time of persecution. But, you know, we had last week on um, Dr. Mark Wilson on, and he believes in an early date for the book of Revelation. And one of the reasons why he does so, as he says, it makes sense of persecution and suffering mm -hmm. that it was written during the time of Nero or just after Nero's uh, death. And for the next couple of years, things were tumultuous for Christians. And so he places the date of Revelation for that reason. But most scholars today, I think, and I can, I, can, I can probably say most scholars today, don't believe that Revelation was written during a time of persecution, but where persecution was maybe, like in Smyrna, you're going to suffer persecution even for 10 days, but that doesn't mean that other places are. So one of the things that we see, and I'm, I'm going to make an oversimplification, okay. but in the letters that we see, so from Romans through Jude, you, you're pretty much dealing with a church who is needs to be corrected uh, in, in most of the letters. You, you do have some exhortations and some encouragement, but there's a lot of like correcting, like knock this yeah. off. Yeah. And then the thing that you see in most letters is an aspect of warning, uh, not necessarily from what's happening outside of the church, but warning from within. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from false teachers, this sort of thing. Right. Where do we see this and how, how does this play in with the seven messages, especially false teachers that are happening within the church? Yeah. And so first thing to be aware of, right, is almost every book of the New Testament was written to deal with false teachers. They were prevalent then. And I think that's an important thing because I don't think many Christians go to churches today thinking, I got to be on my guard against false teaching. Mm -hmm. But if false teaching was that prevalent in the first century, when the apostles were around, right? The ones who are, who got, nope, that's not the way it works. They can make these authoritative declarations saying you're wrong. And then how much more so is this going to be an issue in our churches today or in Christ Christendom today? And I think that's actually something that we, we need to consider a little bit more deeply. Hmm. So it appears that a significant threat to the seven churches came from these false teachers. And what most likely they were saying something along the lines basically of, it's okay to compromise with the pagan gods and the pagan feasts and the pagan festivities because maybe, maybe they might have been saying something along the lines of, well, God knows your heart. Or, you know, Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians. Uh, there's only one God and we know there's only one God. So, and God knows my heart. So I, when I go to the pagan feast, I'm actually not worshiping the other gods because I don't mm -hmm. believe in them anyways. 
And so it's okay to do so. Um, and again, remember, it always comes back, sorry to say it again, the, to the parable of the sower, because the question is like, why would we compromise with false teaching? And that parable of the sower says that you have one seed, the birds snatch away, it doesn't even sink into the heart. But you have three seeds where the seed so goes into the soil, and basically a plant grows up. But only one of those three seeds bears fruit. The other two seeds don't bear fruit because, well, one of them is their thorns. And the thorns are the worries of life, the deceitfulness of riches, comfort, pleasure, power. I don't want to give those things up. So I'll either hold to a theology that says it's okay to have these things or a personal conviction. I've worked hard to get these things. So I deserve them. That person doesn't work hard. Therefore, they don't deserve them. So I shouldn't give them away to them. We hold to a theology that justifies our power, our comfort, our security, or we just give up Christianity altogether mm -hmm. because I need power, comfort, security, pleasure, things of that nature, and food. And the other soil didn't bear fruit because stones, and stones represent persecution and suffering. And the point is, Jesus said, if you're going to proclaim Jesus, and it's so important to note that when you read the parable of the sower, the next verse, which we often think is not part of the parable of the sower, says, a lamp is coming. And the translations all say a lamp is brought, but a lamp is coming is what the Greek text says, and the lamp is Jesus. Not to be put under a bushel, but to be put on a lampstand. Jesus is saying, look, I'm coming to be made known. And if you're going to make me known, you're going to get thorns and you're going to get stones. But the good tree bears fruit or the, the good soil bears fruit regardless of stones and regardless of thorns. So what we do then is we compromise our faith or our beliefs so that we don't suffer persecution or we just simply get rid of our beliefs. We renounce Christianity because of suffering and because of persecution. So I think that's what's going on. In fact, this is, we'll get to it much later, of course, the mark of the beast. The temptation with the mark of the beast was to assimilate in the local culture. And guess what happens? If, if you don't have the mark of the beast, verse, chapter 13, verse 17 says, you cannot buy or sell. There you go. In a fragile Roman economy where food was scarce and food sources were common, and you needed to be able to, to participate in the economy you can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And it's likely compromising with society in some way, uh, way, shape, or form. So what's probably happening then, I'll give a brief here and we can discuss it more as we proceed, is threats within the churches, they were either facing pressure or maybe actual threats within the communities. And not every church was to compromise with the Roman imperial cult so that they can participate in the economic system. Hmm. And that's, and maybe even so they can avoid persecution, but at least one of those two. You just mentioned the phrase imperial cult. And I think we talked about this with Warren Carter. It might've been someone else. Uh, I remember talking about it with a guest, but that's something like probably one of those terms, anytime you're studying New Testament studies and you're looking at the culture around what's happening, that's one of those terms we need to remind ourselves of because it's such a yeah. prevalent uh, background to yeah. their world. Can you define what that word means and the concept of it? Yeah. So it's really complex, complicated. And the reason why it's complicated is because our world is so different. Mm -hmm. We have clear boundary markers between church and state. I mean, they're fuzzy, but they're still pretty clear for the most part. E right? Even in a Christian nationalism that we've talked about, yeah. it's not what this is. No, not, not at all. So in the ancient world, you simply don't divide up. Uh, by the way, the, the idea of dividing things up is actually um, a, re a result of the Enlightenment. So before mm -hmm. that, religion, state, politics, uh, economics, they were all highly intertwined and all had to do with one another.
let's look at one of the seven messages. If you want to read chapter two, verses 14 and 15 to kind of get started here, and we'll kind of put it in that context and then we'll discuss. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you as soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay. So the Nicolaitans are actually mentioned in the letter to the Ephesus also, which is the first letter. And now they're mentioned here, but we have no idea who they are. And so it's another thing about biblical interpretation, right? John's readers probably knew who they were, so he doesn't explain. But it appears that the situation in Pergamum might have been that some false teachers were saying that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, which was obviously very significantly intertwined with the Roman imperial cult. One commentator says it this way. I think this is a, a G.K. Beale. The imperial cult permeated virtually every aspect of city and often even village life in Asia Minor. And Asia Minor is where the seven churches of Asia are located. They're actually in the, we discussed this with, with um, Dr. Wilson last mm -hmm. week. They're in the west coast of modern, modern day, uh, modern day uh, Turkey, uh, which was known as Asia Minor. And then Asia is a province in the west coast of that. So he goes on to say, so that individuals could aspire to economic prosperity which I'm not sure that prosperity actually was something they were aspiring to, but greater social standing also only by participating to some degree in the Roman cult. Citizens of both upper and lower classes were required by law to sacrifice to the emperor on various special occasions. It was almost impossible to have a share in the city's public life without also having a part in some aspect of the imperial cult. Now, Let's do this, Vinny, since we're running a little bit low on time. Let's let's introduce this topic today, mm -hmm. and then we'll finish it a little bit more thoroughly next week. And I think hearing it twice might actually yeah. help a little yep. bit. So there are some books I've recommended in the past, uh, and I know some of li have liked them and some have not liked them or whatever, but they're called like A Week in the Life of. Yeah, fantastic series. They're, it's a fantastic series of books written by biblical scholars, typically New Testament scholars, Roman historian scholars. I think Gary Burge wrote a book mm -hmm. called A Week in the Life of a Roman Soldier. Yep. There's a book, a, a week in the life of an Ephesus. It's a, yeah, a, a, a week slave. in the life of a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Woman. Of a slave. They're fantastic. And the whole book is a narrative, a story that has one week. And so each chapter is about one day. And it puts you in the historical context of an individual who's maybe grappling with being a Christian and participating in the local pagan culture, or maybe they're considering becoming a Christian, or they're a woman and they're a Christian woman. And so now they're, you know, the intersexuality of being a woman and being uh, a Christian. I think they're actually uh, really, really good. But the issues are really complex. The other thing, as I mentioned a minute ago, was that the empire was not homogenous. So it wasn't simply like, if there's a persecution going on here, that doesn't yeah. mean that it was being enforced over there. Even, even if it's an edict from the emperor, it doesn't mean that a local ruler is actually enforcing that, that edict. There's also other religions around. There's the god of Asclepius. There's the god of Apollo and uh, the religion of Apollo. Uh, and many other local religions and local deities. Remember in the book of Acts, Paul was in Ephesus and great is Artemis of the Ephesians and they're chanting for, chanting for two hours and they're going to throw Paul out. And you're like, there's no way they were doing that for two hours. No, this is how ingrained their culture and their society, the economics and everything about it was highly intermersed so that when Paul was a threat to the economy, and if you look at it carefully in Acts 19, Paul was a threat to the economy. The next result is we need to defend the goddess mm. of our city. So I think that's 
Uh, I'll give you a little bit of a context there. But why, if, if I've become a convert, I'm a Gentile who's become a convert to the God of Israel, and, and we think of conversion in our own modern context, right? Mm -hmm. So this is where we got to kind of strip all of that away. And, and mm -hmm. it's it's not even like just adding this new element It's thinking completely different. Right. Why would they be tempted to even participate in these things when they know that there's only one true God now? They know about monotheism. What's, what's the lure to this? Yeah, so I'll paint a deeper picture next time, but let's just... First thing I'd say is that people like to eat. I mean, there's, there's this reality that's kind of human nature. I kind of like food. Yes. They just wanted to eat. Um, and in an empire where food deprivation was common, that food shortages were common. I mean, the elite in Rome, so wealthy and so extravagant, it caused crises and food shortages throughout the rest of the empire, often. And so Rome had to figure out how to do this. So people, they want to eat. And if you don't, participate in the Roman uh, imperial cult and things of that nature, then you could well be kicked out of society hmm. and being kicked out of society or the, the, you know even that local community that you might be part of, then guess what? You're not going to eat because that's what you need to do business with. That's who you sell to. That's who you buy from. That's who you work for or who you work with. And if they're thinking, you know, if I associate with Vinny because he's become a Christian now or a follower of Jesus now, that's going to do harm for my business. So they're going to ostracize you just to preserve for their own wealth, their own sake of well-being as well. So it, it kind of really comes on you. So now there's a lot of pressure. So, um, so and while while we talk about cancel culture, whatever that is, yeah. and there's nuances there, uh, and, and we think that's the biggest injustice. This is in an honor and shame society where like you literally could push someone out of society and just not associate. And and for us, that means okay, I might not have a big of a voice or something right. like that. This means. I might not have the ability to get the basic resources that I need for. Yeah. To, yeah. For you might day. not get work. Mm -hmm. um, and if, or, or be able to buy something or yeah. be able to sell some, these are day laborers who live day by day, trying to find food for the next day and to be ostracized from a trade guild and mm -hmm. trade guilds were communal functions. You know, um, think of um, uh, that, that, that becomes a social club also. Okay. Uh, like uh, the Freemasons, things like yeah, that. Was, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. You think of the, those kind of clubs, which might not be as prevalent today as they were, you know, 50, 75 years ago, but they were like religious in one sense, but they were more also social. Yeah. And, and people have, you know, these golf clubs that they join or these knitting clubs that they join. And so to be ostracized from that meant to be ostracized from your community and therefore had a serious economic implications. Well, and I'm even thinking of like serious blue collar towns where you have yeah. like longshoremen and yeah. your dad and your grandpa were longshoremen. And this is just what you do in your whole community, your uncles, everyone is this. And to do something that would go against that, yes. you're not just losing your job or whatever, you're losing your entire community. Yes. And your dad might be losing something too. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, a, that's actually a good uh, coal mining towns or things yes, of that nature. Exactly. All of a sudden that's the, that's you're doing a, something else yeah. and like, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Um, so was it possible for a Christian who's trying to be faithful to participate in some of the activities, not others? I, I had this conversation this morning with someone where he was like, can a Christian watch this particular show? Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's, yeah. it's always trying to find the rules of like, what are we allowed to do? What are we not allowed to do? Right. Which, which tells you that there's a, the problem's actually not in the answer. The problem's in the question. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so could they, what, what's, you know, how would they work with that? Yeah. The, the answer is Jezebel and the prophetesses and the other prophets and the Nicolaitans were saying, yeah, you can. And John's drawing a, a, a very hard line saying, no, you can't do this. By pledging allegiance to Jesus as Lord, 
Jesus is the only Lord and therefore Caesar is not. And you, again, we got to get our hands around the fact that this isn't just religion. It's the imperial religion that says the emperor is Caesar is Lord. And therefore to say, to affirm that Caesar is Lord means you're saying Jesus is not. Mm -hmm. And so John's drawing up and we'll discuss this before, but let's kind of wrap this up maybe by asking the question of what this means for us today, right? Okay. Because it's so easy to have this conversation and putting it into an ancient context that we think, oh, it's like that. But I think, and I kind of alluded to some of these uh, already, where I think we have bought into false prophets and false prophecies a whole lot more than we think. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what John might be saying to us. I, I don't know. What do you think about some of that and maybe some of the applications of this as we finish up? And then we'll just jump into this topic more more detail next time. Well, the low-hanging fruit in the American church especially is to go after something like the prosperity gospel, the health okay, and right. wealth yeah. stuff, where, it, you know, in, in that theology that says God wants you to have these sorts of things and that's a sign of his blessing. Right. And I think it's really easy to... It, and there's a lot of overlap where many Christians would say that's wrong. And we could, right. you know, kind of stand arm in arm. The difficult thing becomes the stuff that's not as obvious or that's much easier to justify. I, you know, a guy that this would be a longer conversation we won't get yeah. into, but uh, when we did the series on the book of Acts, we had Dave Shields on Dave and Kimberly Shields. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Dave, uh, you know, his story we've documented. And uh, when I got to know Dave when we were at the same church together, I, I questioned this, I, you know, I, I posed the question to him, like, when should Christians feel bad in America about how much stuff we have, especially when, as he was describing mm -hmm. living amongst the kids in Kenya and, and the garbage dumps and, you know, or living in the Philippines and that sort of thing. Right. And, and there's an aspect, and this is a guy who's lived that life, right? Yeah. Where it's, it's, he didn't give me the correct formula, but right. there's an aspect Good. of saying like, you shouldn't feel guilty for where God has placed you. He sovereignly put you in America in this time and place. And so you can't control that, right? But it, it's also that challenge of what do you do with that? And how are you thinking about these possessions and how are you using them? And yeah. so it, yeah. there, there's, not a, there's not a clear like yes or no, like do right. I become this ascetic person where I renounce everything I own and do I live, we have a huge po homeless population in my, uh, in my city. Do I just go live amongst them now? Is that, the, right. is that what I'm supposed to do? Uh, exactly. you know, so, so I know it's, it's just one of those bigger things that I'm not going to say it doesn't matter how we end up. It does, but the ends don't justify the means like the process matters in how we think about these things. Yeah, yeah. Cause that's part of our sanctification. If you know the, right. the phrase I would use in my tradition. Right. And if someone asks us the question, the answer is that's between you and the Lord. Mm -hmm. That's I can give you help in terms of how to frame the question, but I cannot give you any help in terms of how to answer the question. Yeah. And so, you know, first John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Mm. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. And so that's the first question. It's not a matter of what possessions do you have. It's a matter of whether or not you love them. Mm. And you can have a love for possessions and be poor, mm. right? I mean, that, that's easy. So that's the first thing. That is, what are we doing with our wealth? What are we doing with our power? What are we doing with our privilege? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not a matter of, do we, do we have these things, therefore it's wrong? It's like, no, we have these things. And now what do we do? I, I said before, when we discussed this in the book of um, uh, Gospel of Luke, and that is, I, man, Theophilus is one of the first people I want to talk to someday. Yeah. Because like, how did you do it, dude? If you read the book, of, the Gospel of Luke, it's basically condemning everything you are and were. So what do you do with this? But I, I highly recommend uh, Richard Foster's book, The Freedom of Simplicity, uh, especially starting in chapter five and, and the rest of the book. It is, it is a tough read. 
It's going to challenge you. It's going to undermine some of your beliefs. If you're married, make sure you read it with your spouse mm. uh, because you can't have one of you having mm -hmm. certain beliefs and the other one because it, it's tough. But it, it challenges us. And it talks about simplicity. And one of the things it said there, Vinny, was it said, you know, the answer isn't necessarily selling all your possessions and, and going in and living in a monastery um, because you might take the wrong attitudes with you there. Um, and so that was actually, it's, it's like, yeah, what are you doing with your power with your possessions and things of that nature. And how are we using this for the, for the, for the sake of the kingdom? I think that's where we start. Yeah. As people who uh, you and I, we're not the same age. You're actually really old, but we kind of overlap generations, wow, but dude. I know, right. Sorry. Uh, well, you have a grandkid. I only have a five-year-old, but uh, that's just because I started late, but I don't, I don't know the, the spiritual condition of princess Diana, you know, peace yeah, be upon her. Right, she died right. what 25 years ago or whatever that was, but she's always someone who struck me who had it right, at least from the outside where this is someone who, who eventually inherited all this power and privilege, uh, you know, being mm -hmm. a simple girl who then became this princess, but she was so known for her philanthropy mm -hmm. and I don't know what her, her heart was, but right. there's so much in terms of engaging with the poor and, and really seeming like she wanted right. to. Uh, just not live in the ivory tower, which she literally could have, mm -hmm. but it's like, it's that kind of person. I don't know what's going on with her heart. And that's at the end of the day, what, you yeah, know, what yeah, matters right, in exactly, a sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. but in terms yeah. of the image of that, it's like, okay, it's that kind of thing. And and I think that's good because that also, it bucks against this, what's becoming more popular, which is the idea that people who have wealth by nature are evil. And it's right. like, well, that's ridiculous that because that means then by having nothing, that means you are inherently good. Yeah, and we know that that's point. not true. Right. And so to, to, to fall into one of those paradigms is just lazy thinking yeah, yeah, and not yeah. charitable. Yeah. I'm sure this is going to be a question we're going to be asking a lot as we go through our study. So we'll continue to ask it then and yeah. uh, pick it up next time. Yeah, very good. Okay. So I guess we're going to be hanging out in the seven messages for a while then. So mm -hmm. if, if you don't, don't think that, well, they didn't get to this one thing. We're probably, I'm guessing, going to take a few passes at this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very good. All right, Rob. Hey, you have a great week. Hope everyone continues. Uh, keep reading through these messages, read through the whole book, but read through these seven, especially, and really become familiar with them. And, uh, and, and I think you'll probably see some stuff jump out at you as we continue to talk through it. Catch everyone next week. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.